Monster! All right, we're rolling. We're rolling. I'm counting us down. Three! A two! You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Missing Out. I am Tari J. I am Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, we, what we do here is we introduce each other to different pieces of art, whether it be movie, music, spoken word, paintings, uh, television, anime, all different varieties of art that we've intaken, and then we share it with each other so that the other can intake it, and then we look back upon it, and we think about how it affected us. We are the retrospective that's introspective. So here's my pitch for intaken. It's, okay. It's Liam Neeson. And a loved one is abducted, and he has to use his special skills to retrieve them. Yes. But to do so, he has to shrink down and go into uh, Dennis Quaid's body. Ooh. And he has to fight a microscopic terrorists. I'm into it's it. It's called Intaken. I, w- I thought you were going to go with, like, he's a doctor, and so he like he's intaking patients. And killing them? Yeah. Just like an assembly line? Mm-hmm. All right, well, so he does. So he does that, right? Like that's where we find him. That's like our, when we establish his character. Right. He's he's quote unquote he's retired, right? Yeah. Um, but he's been he's been working as this intake specialist, and he's been just offing people. Real like he gets him into the room, he shuts the doors, like click, and then. Um, but then a loved one is taken. Right. And he has to do an inner space. Ooh. And it's a little bit. It's a little bit. It's taken meets inner space meets Osmosis Jones because he has like a CG uh, uh, like blood cell character sidekick. Yeah, that travels course. around with him. Yeah, is gonna make a lot of money. It's not gonna be good, and everyone's gonna love it because it's not good. They're gonna be like, "What an audacious pile of garbage!" I loved it. Right. It'll be our room. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, if you would like to sponsor our sweet new version, not even our version, but our room, uh, hit us up on Twitter at Missing Outcast, M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T, Missing Outcast on Twitter. Um, but also, if you want to know what we're talking about today, we are discussing A Serious Man, a 2009 film by the Cohen brothers. Uh, this was Lex Michael's recommendation. It was. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so uh, you had never seen this. I. It's been a while since I've watched A Serious Man. All right, where? Let's jump back. Let's go back to 2007. Uh, in 2007, the Cohen brothers released a movie called No Country for Old Men. You may be familiar, but if I'm not mistaken, you haven't seen that one either. That is correct. So we're definitely going to do a show on that at some point point i don't want to sound too hyperbolic for my money no country for old men is one of the best american films of the past quarter century interesting uh it came out same year as another one of the best american films of the past quarter century there will be blood yes uh a film by paul thomas anderson working in collaboration with the actor daniel day lewis yes uh there's actually a really direct line to uh now uh in early 2018 as we're recording just recently the 2018 Academy Award nominations have been announced, and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis's latest collaboration, Phantom Thread, is up for Best Picture, along with a whole slate of other uh, real wonderful movies. There's an actor by the name of Michael Stuhlbarg who appears in three of the nine Best Picture nominees. Okay. Uh, it's a full third. Now, I'd be grumpier that this dude wasn't getting a little bit more Academy recognition this year, but I am so convinced that this dude's time is coming in a big way, and soon, I'm going to let it slide. Point being, uh, Michael Stuhlbarg is one of our, in my opinion, one of our best and most underappreciated, under-recognized actors working on screen today. Jump back to 2009. When the Coen brothers followed up No Country for Old Men with a much, uh, you could argue, a smaller, uh, almost a parable of sorts, mm-hmm. which starred this actor. This was my first exposure to Michael Stuhlbarg as an actor. It made me a fan immediately. And as for the movie itself, uh, I'm a big, like so many are, I'm a big, big fan of the Coen brothers. I think they have a staggering body of work. And we can, like, if you're 
If you're struggling to pull titles out of your head, we can do the list and you'll be like, oh, I've definitely heard of those as being very impressive. Even within the broader context of their body of work, uh, and despite not having seen it in most, probably most of 10 years now, um, I had it in my head somewhere. Oh, I'm pretty sure Serious Man might be my favorite of their movies. Without ever, without going back to confirm it for myself, I yeah. had held on to this bit of knowledge in in the back of my brain somewhere in like a box in my brain basement. Having watched it again last night, yeah, I think this still might be my favorite Coen Brothers movie. That's interesting. So I, um, uh, maybe I've mentioned this on this show before, maybe I haven't, but I find it very hard to watch slice of life things um i why and and example like i know i know what you mean by slice of life thing but do you have like an example of uh of what you're talking about like that you can directly tie this to like what is one that is representative of what you're describing that you have a hard time with um mm, i think in so when i say slice of life i i mean things that feature just kind of like the everyday occurrences of regular people in their lives and like uh, the day-to-day of, uh, I guess, just just normal, normal dudes. Um, and I think mostly because I, uh, I think I have the same kind of disconnect that you might have, like that you had described with anime and that like I just don't ha- have, uh, I just don't, connect with it uh very quickly like i have to really kind of focus in because like i think that when i'm going to to find like things i like what what really resonates resonates with me is like really fantastical things i've been thinking about this exact same thing a lot recently for some reason i think it's just because now every time a big spectacle movie comes out uh, half of the audience seems just so like rapturous in their glee and the other half just seems so mad about them liking stuff. Right. And I started to think again, as I do every so often about why, you know, I'm getting older. I'm a oh, good Lord. I, I technically uh, count as a grown person. Yeah. Um, why do I keep coming back to, to that same, like the, what you were saying, like the big fantastical stuff as opposed to like, I can look at a movie like, I don't know, like a uh, darkest hour just popped into my head, which I saw recently, not uh, solid. Uh, Oldman does really great work. Pretty much every department on that movie does great work, but like most, uh, like most white dude biopics, I feel like <laughs> there's not a whole, there's not a whole lot of new story ground to tread as far as structuring a traditional biopic around a, a significant white dude. But right. Point being hyper, hyper realistic, right. Or quote unquote, hyper realistic, uh, uh, cinema, I think there's a lot of value to it, especially you can use it as a prism through which to tell stories that feel a little bit dangerous. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it, a lot of it does very little for me personally. Not that like, whether it's slice of life or not, uh, the more hyper-realistic something is, I find it very impressive where you can uh, directly reflect the reality that we live in. But a lot of the time for me as an audience member, I find that the more grounded in our day-to-day uh a story is a, a cinematic story is the more mundane it ends up feeling to me. Okay. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I, I I'm not dismissing these stories. Yeah. I think of course, execution is 99% of the thing. And you can mm-hmm. take these, these ideas and present them in such a way that they are incredibly engaging for anybody, even somebody like me. That's like, I could, I could see that outside. Boo. Give me tie fighters. Um, but I, I've always had the same, I feel increasingly too, like I have a, a very similar relationship with, uh, I guess, quote unquote, like realism or yeah. naturalism in cinema. It's like, I'm good with it, but I need like, give me more, give me more fun, something, give me something to heighten it because, and maybe this is part of it for you. I don't feel like my, like my reality, my external reality might be represented, uh, on screen, yeah. but my internal relationship to that reality, I never feel represented which which creates a disconnect for right. me like i see a world in which i exist but i don't see my relationship to that world at all here which i do see a i see a great deal of in a serious man sorry oh, i like really? i like grabbed that and like ran way away from no 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 i mean cuz you're basically hitting a, a lot of what uh i was getting at in that like i think that 
for me personally, uh, I I like like uh, fantastical things, and I like real um, nonfiction stories. I think that I think that slice of life fiction fits somewhere in between there, and it is my personal uncanny valley. In that, like it it ultimately feels like a facsimile of what human interaction should be. Right. Um, and so it is, I mean, because essentially it is one person's view of, of like what life is. And so it's me trying to figure out what, like a way into how they see these interactions and, th- and things of that sort. Okay. So like, uh, like this movie specifically, like I get, I get the the parts that are humorous and I get the parts that um like are supposed to make you think sort of it doesn't feel like a movie that's like hey think about this right it feels like a movie where you see these series of events happening and you resonate however you do but the movie itself isn't explicitly telling you how to feel right i think and i think too what you feel and to what degree is going to vary. And I think the the biggest variable is how much of yourself you see in the Larry Gopnik character. Right. And the way he is relating to his external circumstance. And that for me is what separates for just for my personal taste, what separates this movie from so many other, uh, like the slice of life movies that you're referring to is in those movies, I don't see somebody who's feeling about what's happening around them the way I'm pretty sure I would feel about what tends to happen around me. Yeah. I, I see. For better or worse, I don't know if this is something I really should... I, I'm, it's, not, it's not a brag, you know what I mean? But like, for better <laughs> or worse, I see, I see, especially now, because I haven't... Like I, I mentioned, I think the last time I watched A Serious Man was at maybe 2011, if not a little earlier than that. Oh, not, it might be 2010. So okay. now in 2018, better part of 10 years ago, uh, the older I get, the more of his his relationship with the world around him I see in myself. Okay. This this constant um not even it's not even a feeling of being put upon so much as all of these things keep happening and I am at a I am at a complete loss to explain how or why they're happening. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this I've I've read like what I've read about the film is people compare it to the Book of Job a lot. That's yes, that's very much there. Should we yeah. we should maybe real quick explain the story of Job in case somebody listening doesn't know the story of Job? Yeah, you ain't read your Bibles, kids. Um, I mean the the long and the short of the Book of Job is um the God and the devil were like yo son uh faith man humans they keep their faith no matter what and the devil's like i can make somebody lose their faith and god was like yo job will not lose his faith no matter what you do fuck you and then uh (laughs) the devil was like all right i accept your challenge so he essentially uh killed this dude's family gave him uh gave him boils destroys his land just yeah destroys his land and then job's like you know what I still got faith. It's all part of God's plan. And the devil's like, you got me. Curses. Foiled again. And then because Job never strays, despite everything that God is throwing at him, he is then rewarded. Like, I think God, if I remember the ending of the story correctly, like God not only replaces everything that he took from Job, but like doubles a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but right. So point being, yes, there are a lot of very clear parallels to the story of Job. Although, and hopefully you've watched a serious man, if you're listening to this, Larry eventually does stray from the path and immediately with it snap your fingers, the wrath of God descends upon him. Yeah. So is that how you anticipated the ending? Like, I guess jumping forward a lot um, at the end, Joe, not Job, um, Larry uh, ends up taking or changing the kid's grade. Clive using because uh, Clive got an unacceptable grade. How great was that kid, though? He was great. That pause. This entire cast is phenomenal, and I'm going to sidebar really quick. This is also the first place I ever saw, and I think the first place a lot of people saw uh, Fred Melamed, the, the wonderful character actor who plays Cy Abelman. 
Okay. Um, he now I know he did. Um, I think I think it just got canceled, but uh, he was on Maria Bamford's Netflix show, Lady Dynamite. Okay. He, uh, if you saw Lake Bell's In a World, he plays her father. Okay. And he also did an episode of Fargo this past season. Uh, he was only on one episode, and it was a big flashback sequence, but. Uh, in a pretty sizable supporting role that season also featured Michael Stuhlbarg as a character named Cy. Oh. Anyway, you were saying. Um, so yeah, basically he decides to change. I guess I'd have to go back to talk about Clive and that Clive was a was a, stu- a student of his who essentially may or may not have left money for him in he order got a, to he change got his grade. On, right, he got an F yeah. on his midterm, and he says that that's unacceptable. And he keeps say, he's saying to Larry, it's like, well, I can take the test again. And Larry says, well, I don't think the other students would like that very much. And Clive's like, secret test. Yeah, and Larry's that's like, real no. hush, hush. Yeah, and Larry's like, no, that's not how it works. And Clive leaves this meeting disgruntled, and Larry discovers uh, immediately after Clive leaves that there's an envelope of money yeah. on his desk. And now, okay, so... You're asking me about how I interpret the ending. Already, just talking about Clive, we introduce this other, this idea, this, uh, and they hit this really directly because he's explaining Heisenberg's uncertainty principle to his entire class. Mm-hmm. The uncertainty and the, the Schrodinger's cat paradox thematically play into almost every strand of this story. Immediately when he sees the envelope, yes, you could reasonably infer that Clive left this money as a bribe, but we didn't see that happen. Right. Larry didn't see that happen, despite sitting across a desk looking directly at Clive the entire time he's there. Maybe it's bribe money. Maybe it's not. Where did it go? We don't know. And we're left to, just like uh, Clive's dad says in their one conversation, we must embrace the mystery. Mm-hmm. So when he strays finally at the end of the movie and he gets that, a couple of things happen. He gets that call from his doctor and the tornadoes descending upon his son's school he was given a clean bill of health earlier in the movie so immediately we're we're we bump into a couple uncertainties if he hadn't strayed because the timing of that call felt like providence you know what i mean yeah if he hadn't strayed would he would that phone have rung at all would the call have been completely different would the there was a there's a tornado advisory but would that tornado all of a sudden have materialized right in front of his son's school we don't no, and that's only one angle from which to approach the ending. This isn't me suggesting that that encompasses every facet of it. Right. But, okay, so going all the way back even to the beginning, this was the first time I'd seen it, and again, hadn't seen it in about eight years, where the prologue clicked for me. Oh, really? Where I, where I fully understood what that scene was doing in the movie. And even to fully explain it, I still, much like the ending, I feel like you have to tackle a bunch of different facets of it to hit all of it did the okay so let's jump way back to the top okay did the prologue track for you like did you find yourself even when the movie had ended did you find yourself going what was the purpose of this um no i well yes sorry there were two questions and they were opposing answers um yes it tracked for me i didn't wonder what the purpose of it was mostly like i think halfway through maybe when he was talking to the when we got the story about the goy and his teeth, um, yes, that was kind of when it clicked for me. And this idea where he kept asking, "What was the point of that story? Why are you?" And telling I love that me the rabbi's the- like, "Is that important?" Right. <laughs> He's like, "Yeah, it's important. I need to know." That was the, I thought that was the reason you were telling me this entire story. Yeah. And yes, he's railing too, like the most peaceful people in the story, the people who seem the most serene, infuriatingly so, are people that are absolutely content embracing that mystery. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, um, it was about there where it made me think about that opening story, where essentially, it could like that rabbi. Uh, the the what I don't know if he was a rabbi. I guess he was the in the pair or the the like prologue story. Um, he could have been alive or he could have been a ghost. Like, so already already know. right. Yeah. While he's sitting there, we're dealing with uncertainty and we're dealing with a Schrodinger's cat allegory. Right. Because there's this moment when he's not bleeding and you're like, okay, I he could be a ghost. And it's then key, right. The, yeah. The, but the wife says you're not bleeding. And it is only then we start to see blood. Right. So for all, again, maybe he's actually bleeding and he's just being real. He's accepting it. He's that quote that opens the movie, embrace with simplicity, everything that happens to you, which again, all of the, all of the characters who are the best off uh, spiritually, uh, mentally and emotionally in this movie are able to do that. And Larry isn't this 
uh, potential Dybbuk is even being stabbed, he receives it with simplicity. <laughs> yes. And I, I also like that even if you even beyond um, the stabbing, the two accounts of the story of his death, like also leaves this ambiguity in between in that, yes, he may have disappeared or he left the the doctor's office because he wasn't dead. You know, and there's no way to know which is true. Right. And when he wanders out into the snow at the end, for all we know, he gets about 10 yards up the road and falls down dead in the snow. Right. But you notice as soon as he walks out and he like uh, he exits, you see him like disappear uh, to the left of the door frame pretty immediately. Yeah. And then it cuts back, but he's just gone. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't know. For all we know, he just evaporated into the ether. Or he's just a corpse outside their house. Right. And you don't know. Right. So, yeah, I actually I liked that it's it's this guy, which is. I guess if when you think about faith, it's this guy railing uh, against a world where there are no definitive answers. And trying to reconcile that faith. And of course, obviously, a big, big, big element of the prologue is that it is very much rooted in Orthodox Jewish tradition. Right. Um, trying to reconcile the tenets of his faith with with the tenets of the scientific principles that he has uh, structured his life around that he's trying to impart to others. Right. Uh, and before we leave the prologue where it is, um, just, just yeah, in summation of that sequence, pretty much every uh, thematic thread that we're going to be tracking is hit in that scene and a number of plot elements as well. I mean, Psy, uh, once, spoilers, once Psy uh, perishes in a car crash, mm-hmm. he uh, he returns as a Dybbuk of sorts to haunt uh, Larry's dreams. And so it gets so uh, it's so on the nose in his dreams at one point that you have that moment of the psi uh, uh, apparition literally slamming Larry's head into a blackboard with the uncertainty principle uh, spelled out in mathematics on it. Yeah, the, a perfect of a, a, a perfect, albeit on the nose depiction of the two, the spiritual and the scientific elements of Larry's life colliding in a very jarring way. Mm-hmm. And the last thing about uh, the prologue is that that character is credited. Uh, the character name in the credits is Dybbuk with a question mark, <laughs> which I, lo- I love only like you get to the end of the movie and maybe you even forgot about the prologue and then you get to that little credit and it's like, Oh, right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Ah, uh, geez. Um, oh, but so, okay, so we were talking about... Yes. Um, you were talking about uh, Slice of Life, and I was talking about how I don't necessarily see my relationship to my external reality depicted even when I recognize the external reality. Now, this movie is uh, 1967. I believe it's set... I believe it's set outside of Minneapolis, and it's very much... Um, this was very much the environment in which the Coens grew up. Yeah. And it's not... I don't know if you felt any drips of nostalgia in this movie but i did not uh i really i really enjoy that even though that this was at least uh externally their experience they they're still willing to interrogate their own experiences Mm -hmm. and approach them at a remove what i really love about this it's a combination of uh i mean it's aesthetics right so like roger deakins shot this movie uh, yes, uh, 14-time Academy Award nominee, never never Academy Award recipient, uh, one of the greatest cinematographers that has ever worked, uh, this year up for Blade Runner 2049, which we say every time Roger Deakins gets nominated for one of these, we say this needs to be the year he wins or someone over there doesn't understand the definition of cinematography. And every year they don't give him the statue. Uh, but he's the Brad Pitt of cinematography. No, he's more like the Meryl Streep of cinematography if Meryl Streep never won. <laughs> um, so his, his camera, but also uh, more to the point that I'm going to make Carter Burrell's score. Uh, Carter Burrell, has worked with the Coen brothers uh, up to a point, maybe still, but certainly up to a point, I've worked on every one of their movies with the exception of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love the effect that his score has on the movie because as Larry uh, works his way through his day-to-day, sidestepping and being faced with the incredibly, the almost crushingly mundane 
you get this score that it's like this building, this almost a, a punishing sense of encroaching dread in response to every piece of it. Mm-hmm. And that, like, just on an aesthetic level, almost immediately the first time I saw this, I remember it. And even more so, the older I get, it hooking me completely because I went, yeah, that's how this feels. That's <laughs> that's how, that really is. Like, it's, it's how facing, the, if you're, I'll qualify. If you're a certain type of overly analytical personality, mm-hmm. and if you're the the type of over analytical personality that really, despite understanding on some level that there aren't necessarily answers for most things, you're desperate for answers to most things. You yeah. you really want to know. You need to know the why behind the what to try and understand your own place in existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, facing the mundane feels a lot like that. These little nothings start to feel like potentially dangerous, threatening instances. And I love that they don't, they never, there's never a part of a a dialogue in the movie. It's just all there right from the jump aesthetically. And like, yeah, like it's not, it's not necessarily a score that, that like, you know, it's not it's not one that I'd be like, oh, I got to get like a vinyl copy of this score and spin it all the time. Mm-hmm. But as far as uh, music uh, performing an absolutely essential function uh, to to the I think the greatest degree it possibly could. Yeah. Carter Burrell score. Aces. Nice. Uh I also like Jefferson Airplane. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I like. <laughs> wow. I like was almost totally spacing on the Jefferson Airplane stuff. Yeah, I'm a big Jefferson Airplane fan. I don't know if you are or not. I don't. I don't. I've heard their songs. I don't think I'm like a. Oh my gosh, Jefferson Airplane, the best band in the world. I got way into when I was at like early, late middle school, early high school is when I got way into. Uh, classic rock like all of the big like mm. uh mid to late 60s early 70s acts so i went through a big uh jefferson airplane phase okay and they use they use uh i want to say three tracks i know they use uh somebody to love they use uh today but yeah jefferson airplane and it's uh uh every i feel like everybody's heard uh somebody to love and i feel like everybody's heard white rabbit for sure yeah um uh, two tracks uh with uh, vocals by grace slick who is not their vocalist on every track uh jefferson airplane incidentally though this has nothing to do with this movie uh would later uh disband and reband as jefferson starship uh who mm. probably best known for we built this city on rock and roll yes uh but i remember the most fondly for uh jane which is a dope song and if you've seen any iteration of wet hot american summer it's the track that they use for the the titles Okay. Um, anyway, yes, I love the use of Jefferson Airplane. It roots it in time and place. It it provides a really interesting juxtaposition of cultural elements when we open, uh, after the prologue, we open on his son uh, with the radio sneaking the Jefferson Airplane in class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also really like, we get that uh, almost an inversion of that weird clash of cultural elements when he finally gets to speak to the aged rabbi who Larry never gets FaceTime with. Yeah. And the rabbi starts quoting Jefferson Airplane lyrics to him. Like, clearly the rabbi's a fan, which was great. Yeah. Um, I, that rabbi. I was hoping that he was going to end up being the guy from the prologue, because that would have been real cute. There was um, There is some speculation. Uh, a lot of people I've seen suggesting that maybe the characters we see in the prologue are ancestors of Larry Gopnik. Mm. And possibly some of what befalls him in this movie is a result of his ancestors essentially inviting a curse upon their family. I don't know that there is anything, there might be, but I don't know that there's necessarily anything in the body of the text that absolutely confirms that. But yeah. again, we embrace the not knowing. <laughs> no, I need answers right now. I need all the answers. Um, like there are some things in this movie, right? And this is, that is ultimately, this movie is about a few things, but I feel like the biggest recurring idea is is uncertainty and accepting uncertainty. Um, look at the character of Arthur, his brother played by Richard Kind. We we really never get to know much of anything about him other than he has to drain this cyst with a device. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the cyst that's on his neck. And we know that he's uh, got some type of mathematical genius, but he is putting together this 
we don't even know what it is. It's a system. It's not, it's not a device. It's like a system or a methodology called the mentaculus. Yeah. But we don't really know what it is, except we get, we get suggestions that it might apply to like a system of counting cards because he gets busted for gambling at a certain point. Yeah. But he's also being looked into for some type of perversion. Like they reference sodomy so that we never have any of these things addressed in greater detail. So, so we, and I think to a large extent, Larry, uh, we're left to wonder like, is Arthur, like, who is this guy? Yeah. He seems to be a, a good person, but is he like, is he misunderstood genius or is he a weird, is he a, a, a pervert of sorts? Like we don't, we don't know. I mean, he could be both. Oh, he definitely could be both. Right. My, my whole thing with the mentacular, uh, metaculous, metaculous, um, it reminded me, it, it, rang to me like a like a Cohen brothers winky cutie thing like it reminded me of even though it wasn't a didn't seem to be a physical thing it reminded me of in uh burn burn after reading the uh dildo chair <laughs> yes oh man i have not seen burn after reading in a good long while yeah. I'm going back for the dildo chair. You should. And not, not even that there's a dildo chair in the movie. It's that George Clooney's character, like, that is, the dildo chair is his mentaculus. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, so it's, it's it was... Also, because you brought up Burn After Reading, obviously, I think now most people, when they talk about Burn After Reading, what they should really be talking about is the mentaculous dildo chair. But what <laughs> most people talk about is the ending. When we go back to FBI headquarters and J.K. Simmons, uh, like FBI head, like director character, yeah, gets all this information. And they're like, well, what did we learn from all this? Nothing. All right. And essentially we arrive at like, well, that was dumb. Let's make sure that never happens again. <laughs> but we, we accept that those characters... And you notice, they seem perfectly fine with it. They're like, well, this is a clusterfuck, but like, okay. Yeah. Uh, they're cool with not knowing. They're just like, all right, we don't know what that was. Let's not do that again. Moving on. Right. It's a it's an ongoing thing. Uh, like, I feel like this could, in fact, be like a, like either, yeah, like, I guess, a, a not a prequel, but like, it could definitely be in the same universe as burn after reading there's that. a lot of there's a w more thematic overlap i think than one might expect although the coens the coens tend to even when they're playing in ostensibly different genres mm -hmm. they tend to hit a lot of the same types right and if you're going to hit the same types eventually there's going to be some overlap in ideas mm -hmm. so uh which uh not which uh but back to arthur his whole thing it it kind of also reminded me that it was like an older time when he essentially got arrested for gambling and you, you're like, mm, gambling's no big deal. And then I guess prostitution is, is always frowned upon. Depends uh, where you live. I guess so. Yeah. Um, but no shame. There's that moment when he, he's having his job moment where like he is essentially, he, he, Oh, at the pool, you mean? Yes, at yeah. the pool, where he, he had made a bunch of riches doing something, like, basically relishing the fruits of his labor, um, and then he realizes, like, he has nothing. Right. Like, he's just a dude who, despite his best efforts to follow his passion, um, has is just a, a gross, cyst, drainy dude. And now he can't even play cards. It's true. And like, I really, I don't know about you, but I really felt genuine, genuinely bad for this guy in that yeah. moment. Because not for nothing, I feel like, look, do I, do I necessarily, I definitely see more of myself in Larry than I do Arthur. But I think if we're all being honest with ourselves, I feel like a lot of us are only like one or two big curveballs away from being in, if not the exact same position, something that would be emotionally comparable. Yeah. So, yeah, like my heart really good, even though, yes, Arthur's depicted as a real weird dude who we're maybe not necessarily supposed to be able to relate to all that directly. There's still so much raw humanity in that guy. And like he's uh, the way I think Arthur's written and the way Richard Kind plays him. He's almost he feels like a child. Mm -hmm. And I, that's got to be intentional. It's, uh, well, no, it's definitely intentional. You see that scene where they're at the like at the lake with all of those people. And it cuts to, you know, like Larry's talking to, um, you know, a woman, a friend from the community about yeah. Arthur. And it cuts to Arthur out on the lake. And he's 
playing and splashing around with the other kids mm-hmm. in a way that like and the movie never treats that as odd none of the characters treat it as odd because i think the community knows arthur and they they know arthur's okay and that's it that's what it is it's just this acceptance like yeah this is normal arthur is essentially a big kid right um but like and speaking of kids i'm transitioning now um I I wish we had spent a little more time with the kid characters, specifically Larry's kids. Because, um, like, we get a few scenes with Sarah. We don't really get to know her. We get We Danny. know that she she wants to save money for a nose job. Right. That's most of what we get from her. We see we see bits of her relationship with uh, her brother, obviously. But yeah. we're, we track him much more so than her. Yeah. And, and she apparently is off washing her hair, whatever that means. She wants to go to the hole. So we can assume that, like, I read that the hole was a, like, a club that had opened uh, in the late 60s. So I assume that, like, when she's off going with her friends, she's I mean, she's it's possible that, that doing her hair isn't a euphemism. She may actually need to spend hours on her hair to go to this club. No one spends that long on their head. No one. I don't. <laughs> I, I assume, uh, based on the inference I feel like I can make, you don't, but someone must. I'm sure. Um, but I, I'd like to think that there's a little more to her than just, like, doing her hair for hours to go to a club. Well, I'm sure there is more to her, but she's also, you know, she's a teenage girl. She wants to go out. She wants to look good. So I'm sure yeah, I'm sure she does other things. Yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure that when, when she walks out of the frame, I don't think anyone puts her back in, like, the hair closet and she can't come out. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting that we get this a lot of time with Danny, Danny, who is the son's name and, uh, basically his, his whole arc, which I don't think he really like arcs in the movie, but like his, his start to finish is that he needed this $20 to pay off this guy he bought weed from. Um, and then is on this like journey with his, his kid who just, with his friend who just learned the F word um, to like get it back and, and, and get the, the $20 from his, his radio. And so ultimately he starts with the radio and ends with the radio, not really like learning much in the process, just like trying to be a better boy. Yeah. I mean, clearly the arc in the movie is, is uh, Larry's and not his, if there is one. Yeah. The, Danny has a lot of things happen to him, but he does, he does enter uh, within the Jewish faith, faith. He does enter into adulthood in this movie. Yeah. Um, by the way. Okay. So something, something else that is a, a direct personal tie to this movie for me. I grew up in South Florida mm-hmm. uh, in and around Boca Raton, most specifically uh, large Jewish community and I had a there's a good friend of mine um, uh, who was raised Orthodox Jewish and there was this uh, they called it uh, the circle it was a big like a giant cul-de-sac with little offshoots off it like streets other side streets cul-de-sacs just different uh, communities yeah and uh, almost all of them, I believe, were Orthodox Jewish communities. So we'd go and we'd hang out. And like his mom was always the nicest person, but uh, very much in the faith. They kept kosher at home. I think my friend had, uh, I forget if it was ham or bacon for the first time with us in high school. Um, so it was, it was, I was around that a lot. And because I grew up uh, in a community with a, a number of Jewish people in it, around that age, like from 12 to 14, I was at a number of bar mitzvahs. They're all pretty much like that. Oh, really? Yeah. All of that to say, like, I recognize the bar mitzvah stuff. Yeah. Like when uh, when he's listening to his, uh, I think he's like, uh, he's, he's got to learn his Torah portion and he ha- he's trying to learn um, the parts that he has to sing by listening and matching it. And immediately I was like, oh, if you, if you weren't either raised Jewish or raised around Jewish friends, this is probably real weird to you. Hmm. I guess so. Like, I... I I just chalked it up as like just part of the process. I know that it when you're bar mitzvahing, you need to like read a bunch of stuff. I don't think I you gotta, you gotta learn your singing. gotta learn your Torah portion. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, that. But little little things like and uh, too like a lot of uh, Yiddish terms. Like you just you just dropped goy into a conversation a few minutes back, and I was like, oh, you did you know goy before? Or did you learn goy from this movie? Um, I had heard it. Uh, it it's not a it's a 
well-known fact: my roommate is Jewish, and so I learned lots of things. Okay, so you've picked up you've picked up some of this. Yeah. All right. Uh, All right. So I mean, so it's does, not so super does, unfamiliar. Does your roommate does your roommate know Hashem? Um, we've never does, spoken. Does, uh, yeah. Does uh not not Hebrew Hashem. Hashem, the name. No, no, no. I'm saying we we don't talk about like religious stuff. Hashem is God, my dude. I I, I figured it Look out at that through parking context lot. clues, bro. Hashem can be anywhere, even in that parking lot. <laughs> Look upon it with new eyes, eyes with the capacity to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, like it, it's just you know I we uh I lived uh, after I lived in South Florida before I moved out here to uh L.A. I was living in like uh, Massachusetts. I was living like out in a suburb outside of Boston, primarily mm-hmm. not a huge Jewish community around where I lived and coming out here. Obviously there is a Jewish community in both locations, but it's not as prevalent. So like I haven't seen a mezuzah in a long time. Mezuzah is the little, you know what it is. If, you, if you're listening, and you don't know what a mezuzah is. If you're visiting the home of a Jewish friend and you notice their little uh, totem for lack of a better word, yeah. hanging crooked, in the doorway, that is a mezuzah, and it's essentially it's a it's a it's a token to bless the house. You you put essentially you put the name of Hashem in the in the threshold on your gate. Yeah, essentially. Um, but little little bits of the stuff that was super familiar to me that I just haven't been around in a long like a, over ten years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I so I often wonder. I was just re- watch, recently watching. Um, the marvelous Miss Maisel. I hear uh, real good things about that. It's amazing. Okay, that's it's on. It got bumped up pretty high on my list, which means it'll still take me probably a couple months minimum to get to it. But yeah. I'm I'm gonna get to it. Um, but it also takes place, like not takes place, but like it also has a very like specifically a, a New York Jewish um surrounding like all the the main characters are Jewish and and it takes place in that community and things of that sort. And so, like, I always wonder what shows like that and movies like this feel like from a, like, a Jewish perspective. Um, that's not a perspective I have, so I can't comment on it. And that, like, I, I wonder, I, I know that, like, when I watch things that are very uh, black, if you don't know, I'm black. Um, uh, yeah, I know. It's a surprise. I'm, uh, I'm done. But I, I, I feel the, like, those, like, the little details I, I resonate with and I like go, ha ha, that is familiar to me. Ha ha, that is familiar to me. Just in the way that like when I was watching Black Lightning, the mom's use of the word fast, I was like, ha ha, I grew up with that terminology. And so like, you I also wonder, have lightning fingers. I do. Yes. Um, but that's the secret. Now, you know, my identity. Here's that sweet, sweet production value. I'm making finger guns. Um, but uh, I wonder if that, like, if that adds an extra layer to the viewing experience. And it, it sounds like since you kind of grew up in a, uh, a, pre- a predominantly Jewish community, you you have that experience as well. Yes, I mean, uh, again, the the Orthodox Jewish community that was uh, part of the community I grew up in was uh, it was a a pocket within the larger community, but still a pretty sizable pocket right um and it all feels again now i was not raised in the jewish faith so i am i'm by no means an authority on the authenticity of any of it but it a feels incredibly authentic to me b this this was to a very large extent the way joel and ethan cohen were raised so they're pulling from their own without without soaking it in nostalgia Mm -hmm. they are pulling from their own personal experiences as well yeah i really like when a, like a movie or a, or a piece of media can capture an experience without necessarily being nostalgic, but just being authentic, um, which I think is a very, there's a very fine line. Um, and, and you can usually tell by how heightened it is and how many times they turn to the camera and wink and go, look how insert thing we are. Um, Cause that's, that's where the line can is. Can that be our, can that be our uh, tagline for the podcast yeah. from now on? Missing out. Look how insert thing we are. Look how insert thing we are. I want yeah. a t-shirt with that on it. <laughs> would you have just like a blank space with, with insert thing underneath that part? It would be bracketed. It would Bracket. say insert Ooh. thing in brackets. Yes. Okay. Uh, people, audience, make that shirt for us. 
Um, we will wear it while we record the podcast. Yes, we and will. And you'll know we're wearing it because we'll say so. Uh-huh. And we'll shout you out real good. Aw, oh, yeah. <laughs> neither, neither Tari nor myself has ever told a lie. No. No. I never lie. I'm like the young George Washington or the uh, Abraham Lincoln of this podcast. I am like the Jim Carrey in Liar Liars uh, Act 2 through Act 3. Okay, going to save you from this. Uh, but but so I am not lying, ironically, is almost, it's like it's like the Schrodinger's cat of statements. Because if somebody tells you they're not lying, you have no way of knowing if they're lying or not. That's true. I mean, you can you can like look at if it's like they're trying to tell you a really detailed lie that you can debase with facts. Uh, that's one thing. Yeah, but if if you're in a position where you have to take them at your word, and they assure you that they're not lying, you don't know. Mm. Dibbuk. <laughs> <laughs> um, I there's, uh, I wanted in my notes. I I really wanted to talk about the weird relationship between uh, Cy, uh Larry, and uh, Juliet. Not Juliet. What is her name? Janine. J name doesn't matter. J, J name. J name. J name person. I have it in my notes, and it says that her name is Judith. Yes, that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sly Larry and Judith. Uh, Sly. Sly. <laughs> yep. Uh, just names. All right, guys, I quit. I'll see you later. Bye. Got good talk. Oh, he left. Oh, oh, oh he's running. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, what? Uh, okay. Um, so I. Um, so so Cy Abelman is a family friend, a pillar of the community, and a noted serious man uh, who is in a, a relationship, a marriage, uh, an allegedly loveless marriage with uh, Esther. I believe was her she's name. She's dead. Yeah. She, barely cold, but <laughs> died three years ago. Um, and I guess Larry and and. Uh, what did you decide her name was? Judith. It's Judith. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna embrace the mystery, and I'm gonna take you at your word. Yeah, I'm uh, not lying. Dibbuk. <laughs> mm, <laughs> uh, the um, I want that. By the way, on a shirt too. I want ellipses and then Dibbuk. Big question mark. <laughs> um, so they've been having some marital issues, and Judith has turned to Cy Abelman for comfort. She now wants to divorce Larry, but she wants a get, which is a traditional, a faith-based divorce, so that they can remarry within the faith. Uh, she assures Larry that there has been no whoopsie-doopsie mm-hmm. as of yet, and Cy, Cy uh, insinuates himself pretty, pretty. I was going to say forcefully, and yet so calmly and yeah. passively at the same time. Um, but but essentially takes a, a certain measure of control over the situation, and they 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 get together and they basically push Larry out of the house. Yeah, and I this character Sai uh, he reminded me of you remember when we covered Possession? Yes, and we were talking about the 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 second lover who wasn't the tentacle monster. Um, yes, uh, he, and Heinrich. Yeah, Heinrich, who was just like. Free love. Who cares? What? Like he reminded me of that character. So, so Heinrich is the Cy Abelman of possession. Yes. Interesting. Um, the lies. <laughs> the lies. The dibbucks. Um And I, but it, I had no issue with him until they revealed that he was the one sending the like the the letters. The letters, which is not the movie doesn't like stop to make a big to do of it. Like yeah. I feel like you'd on you'd be forgiven for not even catching that, I think. Right. But like and that that like colors the whole thing in that before he was just a dude who was real calm about like trying to make this work. I love I love the notes that he leaves for Larry. Like the second uh like while you were out message where it's yeah. like, let's have a very good talk. <laughs> um and then there's that moment when they're all sitting in the in the restaurant. And Larry tries to convince them to let Judith live with Cy. And they're just like, no, why would you even, why, why would you suggest that? Larry, and, you must be jesting. I don't, I don't, and maybe it's a sign of the times, but like, I do not understand that moment. I, so this might, 
specifically be a cultural thing that I am not necessarily keyed into. I the best I can figure is like if they're not married, it would be it would be improper. It would be sinful to uh, live together as man and wife without having first gotten the get and remarried within the faith. Yeah, but this is that's a guess. I mean, I'm not that, but I'm comfortable not knowing. Yeah, but on it. But if you know, like tweet at me because I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, this is the one time you can at <laughs> Lex Michael. Um, but that would be that. Would be, but honestly, whether that's true or not, it's just it's it's the forces of reality further stacking themselves against Larry. Yeah. Whatever the actual uh, in-world logic of the characters is, it still serves that function. Right. Um, I just you got to be a real garbage person to not only steal someone's wife but also just like try to get them destroyed like professionally why why would you do that the jolly roger is very livable yeah i also i (laughs) just slight tangent i really the the character who like he he was on the board of the tenure board who just kept coming in and being like look you shouldn't be worried about this thing (laughs) Um, so like, just, just don't worry about it, but this is terrible. Good. All right. Bye. Like you just come by just to give really bad news to completely undermine any personal feelings of security Larry might have (laughs) in any given moment. And, and there are all of these things that are tied directly to either his professional or personal life. And then at the same time, he's still getting these weird stressors thrown at him that are not necessarily directly tied to either. Like this dude from the Columbia record club who keeps calling maybe because Danny joined the Columbia record club without telling anybody, but maybe just because he keeps calling. (laughs) I do like that guy's switch. um, The, the Columbia records dude where he was like, I had a, I just got in a car accident. He's like, Oh, are you okay? I'm sorry. Um, that that conversation was a very like Cohen Brothers moment. Yes. because um, they they like are really good at mining the the humor out of really mundane things. Yeah, and and finding if if not the the bleakness certainly a, a bit of the darkness in that mundanity mm-hmm. yeah so um did you have anything else that you wanted to cover before we go i feel like we hit most of it um but essentially suffice to say i like this movie a great deal uh i was i, I very much used this podcast as an excuse to rewatch it um, I'm glad I did. I think it's under two hours. I think it's paced incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, I have a really good time with it. I feel it's one of those movies that I feel I've, I've, uh, not that I could sit and rattle off every line of dialogue from it, but I have so, uh, I had so internalized the feeling that I get from this movie already and when I, it's another one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, pieces of art can sometimes make make you feel seen or like elements of you are seen. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, I can't personally relate to any part of Larry Gopnik's external world. Uh, I'm I'm terrible at math, for example. Um, but the way he seems to be relating to the world mm-hmm. and relating to the obstacles that keep getting thrown at him. I recognize. Now again, that is not that is not necessarily the person I aspire to be at all times, but I I see that or I see a direct connection to the feelings that his struggles to reconcile elements of his reality are creating within him. And I find that we're going back to the slice of life thing that you were talking about right up top. Yeah. If I'm going to watch a slice of life movie, I need something like that. It doesn't have to be exactly this character it doesn't have to be the exact same relationship to the the surroundings and the circumstances but i need i need something like this to offset the mundanity or at least make it clear something's weird about the whole pie yeah you know what i mean and that that like is really how i feel about the world not that it's all terrible not at all something's weird about the whole pie yep there's a finger in that pie that's 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 the answer is but is so is there a finger in the pie there's a finger 
but whose finger? Uh, it's uh, it's the neighbor who takes his kid hunting. It's his finger. Ah. <laughs> I feel like the, uh, the we really didn't mention the neighbor characters at all. Um, I, there there are threads we could follow there, but since we're short on time, I'm just going to shout out these dreams that Larry has and the one dream where he's sending Arthur off in the boat and then Arthur gets taken out by a shot from, from yards away mm-hmm. and he turns and it's his neighbor and the kid and the neighbor goes, look, son, it's another Jew. And they turn the gun <laughs> and then he wakes up in a cold sweat. Shout out to that moment. Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to shout out. Oops, that was me. I thought you were going to shout out the the moment when he's having the most joyless sex with the other neighbor. Yeah. Where she's just like smoking mm-hmm. and like riding and you're like, man, this is sad. It, yes. Uh, but elements of like, he seems so, he just passively allows himself into that situation. Yeah. Just like how, uh, again, the other neighbor too, in a very different way, represents his uh, passive relinquishing of control like he he gets into the conversation about the property line mm-hmm. about how the neighbor keeps mowing onto their property yeah and his wife is like why does that matter but he addresses it and it's i have to assume right tell me if you interpreted it differently it's just about trying to retain some measure of control mm-hmm. and as soon as he brings it up to the neighbor the neighbor says no that's not the line that's the line and larry's just like okay but but still, you're a little bit over the line, and the neighbor won't budge, and Larry backs down. Um, yeah, I feel like he's definitely just trying to have some form of control. Like, you get you get all these moments when he gets home, and he's mostly at the mercy of his family. Like, his wife tells him that he needs to go here, and he's trying to make sure that his son does this, and his, his daughter and his is always yelling, yelling at, at each yeah. other and hitting each other, and the kid just wants to watch F Troop. And it's like, he comes home, right, in immediate chaos and immediately right. like everything he's had a stressful day at work his job position's uncertain somebody might be trying to blackmail and bribe him at the exact same time mm-hmm. um and then he comes home and he's hit with all of that at once right and like on top of that it's it the the property could also represent his feelings in terms of his wife and that it's it's someone else trying to encroach upon his space someone who's not, not I'm, I'm explicitly saying that i'm not referring to his his Wife as property because women are not that. Right. Um, but like it is something that he cares about that someone else is trying to move in on. Yes. Yes. Well, his it's not like right, it's not property, it's just his his place in the world, right. essentially. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, and I, I I started out the gate talking about how slice of life things aren't my thing. Um, I I found a lot of uh, not joy because that's not how what this what, the movie was I supposed have, to elicit. I have so much fun watching this movie, but right, like no one in the movie is having fun. Right. Um. But like, I think that now that I think that if I had watched it when it came out, I couldn't have enjoyed it. Pause. I'm sorry. No, the young rabbi who talks about the parking lot seems to be enjoying himself a good deal. <laughs> uh, anyway, but nobody else seems to be enjoying themselves all that much. Yeah. Sorry, you were saying when it came out, you don't necessarily yeah, think you would have found your way. I don't in. think I would have found my way in. But like, I think that being a grown up now, because um, in 2009, I was a I was fresh ish out of college. Um, I don't think I would have had the life experience to relate to someone who is essentially like losing their faith and, and people who are just trying to like live and, and find their 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 way. Um, but I think that as a as a grown up, I have the patience and the the. This is a weird thing to say, but like I have the the patience and the the life experience to kind of appreciate that in the the things that I experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I I. I'd enjoyed it from that perspective. Yeah. And I, I want to pause again. Like, I feel like we've been alluding to it, but we we keep talking about like uh, certain plot elements and thematic elements. And maybe we're, if you don't know this movie, we might be creating an image of a movie that's like real, he- super heady and self-serious. Oh, no. No. This movie is, I, I don't know about you. I think this movie's hilarious. Like, I think this movie is very, very, very funny. And not like my favorite, I'll phrase it this way. The movies I tend to find funniest are movies like most studio comedies even the ones that i've like oh this is enjoyable this is charming like these are very charismatic people um they don't do a lot for me because every time where it's uh, every time that the function of the movie is to push more jokes Mm -hmm. even if i like most of the jokes it starts to feel a little bit monotonous repetitive 
the stuff I find the funniest are movies without like there's no there aren't any jokes in a serious right. man. It's all played very straight, but it's this juxtaposition of like mundanity and dread and horror yeah. and the reactions that it's evoking and the juxtaposition of moods between um Larry and everybody around him and watching him struggle to come to terms with his place in the place he feels like he's losing and with everybody else around him it creates all of these situations little moments that I think are so so genuinely funny yeah um so keep that in mind if you're like on the fence and you're like I don't know if that sounds like a good time keep in mind that on top of everything else we've been talking about this movie is also very 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 funny yeah um I think that's a good place to to start wrapping up uh so future Tari cue that music yeah that's the music uh thanks for joining us here on missing out i am tari j i am lex michael and if you haven't already make sure to subscribe and if you would love to because we would love to um leave us a rating and a comment below when we read the comments here on the show um five stars if you love what we're doing anything less will make us sad and you don't want to see us sad because it's gross and we ugly cry the whole time um but also uh follow us on twitter at missing outcast m-i-s-s-i-n-g-o-u-t-c-a-s-t if you send us a message there uh we will also read that as well um so yo slide into our dm son um and if you want to slide into our personal dms you can you can follow me at Tari J T A U R I J A Y, and I'm all over social media at the Lex Michael. Nice. So uh, make sure to uh, subscribe so you can get us in that feed every Tuesday morning. Um, and once again, thank you for listening. Pudding. <laughs>